We're in Genesis chapter 20. I'm going to ask you to join me in standing as we read God's Word together. Beginning with verse number 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of his wife, uh, Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech's king, Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for, she is a, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called out all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, house I said to her this is the kindness that you must do to me at every place to which we come say of me he is my brother then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him and Abimelech said behold my land is before you dwell where it pleases you to Sarah he said behold I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is the sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. I've had multiple uh, opportunities to visit the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And it's uh, quite a sobering experience. The purpose of the Holocaust Museum or any other memorial for that matter, such as 9-11's Memorial Museum, is to both document and to remember what has occurred, what things that humanity has perpetrated against itself. 
Unfortunately, it rarely works. We're prone to forget very quickly as we move away from real time where these events occur. This past week, we've been reminded of this reality as we have heard and we have viewed the unmitigated barbarianism displayed by Hamas as they slaughter innocent civilians, including children. Such actions remind us that God's Word is absolutely true when it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, the human heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick, who can understand it? Or Mark verse 21 and 22 of chapter 7, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, evil, slander, pride, foolishness. The list is unending. In recent weeks, we have examined and we have noted the ugly sin that persisted in Sodom and Gomorrah and surrounding cities in that particular region at the time that these events unfolded. We also saw that sin also troubled Lot and his daughters, whom Scripture said were righteous in God's sight, declared righteous. They had the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, and uh, one day we will encounter them in God's presence. We'll have the opportunity to get to know them. But in real time, in this broken world, they still struggled mightily with sin. We see the same thing in Abraham's life. He's a classic example of this spiritual tug of war that goes on in all believers. All children of God still struggle with sin. One minute, we see Abraham doing righteous things, and then we see him doing unrighteous things. In Genesis 20, he fails to embrace godly wisdom and obedience, and instead reverts to fleshly reasoning. This is something that happens to all of us. It's probably happened to you this week, maybe as late as yesterday, maybe even this morning on the way here to church. Fleshly reasoning began to manifest itself in your relationships or in the thinking that you had as you encountered cyclists on the road or any number of other things that gave you that opportunity, right? This text is not going to show you how to miraculously avoid sin, but it is going to help us remember what is at stake and how we are to watch over our souls faithfully. And that includes how to extricate ourselves from sticky, sinful situations, circumstances. So I want to show you three portraits this morning. First of all, we're going to look at Satan's tireless pursuit of hearts and souls. He is relentless. You know, you've seen, some of you men have seen those pugilists, those fighters in the ring that just have what the, uh, I guess this generation calls, they have dog in them. Have you heard that? They have dog in them. That means they just won't give up. You knock them down, they just keep coming back, coming back, coming back, persistently, always, always attacking. This is Satan. He is always, always pursuing 
after our hearts. And Listen, he knows he can't capture the hearts and souls of those who God has adopted into his family. But he sure can make life miserable. He sure can inter- interject himself and cause difficulty in our fellowship with Christ and with one another. So Satan, we're going to see Satan's tireless pursuit of hearts and souls. Second, I want you to see God's sovereign grace at work in us and through us. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter how things unfold, we can be certain God is always working to accomplish his purposes and that his purposes always overwhelm and swallow up those relentless pursuits of Satan. And thirdly, we will see how God honoring course correction is available to us course correction is always there the biggest hindrance to our course correction is we ourselves our own foolish pride that will not allow us to admit to own our indiscretions our sin and to turn from them so let's unpack these this morning. First of all, Satan is a tireless pursuer of hearts and souls. Our passage begins from there. From there. From where? Well, if you look back in chapter 18, verse 33, that's the last time we really saw Abraham, though we saw a cameo appearance in chapter 19 where he came out and viewed the scene as destruction fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. At the end of chapter 18, after he's interceded for Sodom, we see that he returned to his place. Verse 1 of that same chapter places him at Mamre or Hebron. 20 miles south of Jerusalem. This is the place where Abram has settled. This is where he dwells, where he resides. But then we see that he journeyed south toward the territory known as the Negev or Negev. It's the same thing. If it ends with a B or V, it means the same thing. And it's, you know, Israel is shaped like a dagger pointed down. And you have Jerusalem kind of there in the middle. But this pointed section, the southern part of Israel, this is what we're talking about. This is where uh, it is desert, wilderness. It is headed toward the Sinai Peninsula. Abraham was promised Canaan, but it's not his yet. He was a nomad. He's a wanderer. He's a sojourner through this world, just like you and I are. Not yet a citizen not owners of the land, but nomads. This story reminds us a lot. If you've been with us as we've journeyed through Genesis, this reminds you a lot of chapter 12. When Abram left, he left the land of Ur, the land of his father, and journeyed following God's call to this new land, to this land that God said, I will make yours. And when he arrived there, the scripture says that he immediately encountered what? Hello? A famine, right? A famine. A famine gripped the land, this promised land that God had given him. He was about to starve. And so rather than lean into God, look to God, ask for God's direction, what did he do? He packed up his family and he kept moving. He went south to Egypt. He got back into the world of his own accord, not of God's direction. And he got into trouble there. You remember when he went in there, he, he presented Sarah as his sister. And Pharaoh 
took her. She was a beautiful woman, apparently, from everything we can understand from Scripture. And so he brought her in. And God got involved and began to torment them. And they said, they called Abraham in and said, what are you doing? What, what's happening here? Is this, your, is this your wife or your sister? And Abraham said, well, she's both. And so he booted Abraham out of Egypt. Something in it to get kicked out of the world. A man following God gets kicked out of the world. But here we see the same thing happening again. Now, this is probably a, a regular pattern with him because it was his strategy. When he left Ur, he probably told Sarah, he said, you know, we're prosperous. God has blessed us and God's going to use us. And everywhere we go, we're going to be a threat to those that are in power or those who have possessions. They will think that we're being aggressive just by moving into their area. So my life is going to be in jeopardy everywhere we go. They're going to want to kill me to take what I have. And so our best bet is to tell them that you're my sister and therefore we might be able to negotiate an alliance where my life will be spared. You see, he's a very selfless individual, right? He, he's really trusting God. But he had this plan and so he uses it for the second time. The first time that it didn't end well didn't, didn't stay with him. So killing him would have been the most likely appealing option for these landowners, estate holders, rulers, wherever he may go. Then they would take his possessions and, of course, increase their own prosperity. So he comes to this area where Abimelech is, and he, he tells, uh, rehearses this with Sarah, and the same thing unfolds. So Abimelech comes out and says, what are your intentions? What are you here for? Who's this? This is my wife. And apparently... Abraham makes her available, and Abimelech takes her, and so they're kind of working out some sort of an alliance, an agreement. I'll let you stay here, you know, and this is a good goodwill between us. Now, listen, Sarah's about 90 at this point, and I'm not, I'm not, we get the picture, right? She's well beyond, Scripture has told us, she's well beyond the age of childbearing. She doesn't really bring a lot to the table for Abimelech. So this is symbolic more than anything else. Now, Abraham is renowned for his faith among spiritual people. But what we're seeing is that he struggles. He struggles mightily in this area of trusting God. Isn't that interesting? His faith is going to be perfected with time, but it's not perfect yet. He falters repeatedly. And these stumbles, God keeps using to what? To, to prepare him, shape him, begin to help faith take charge of him. Every time he stumbles, it hurts. Every time he stumbles, it's embarrassing. Every time he stumbles, his pride is taken down another notch. And in the midst of that, God continues to show him that he is faithful he is steadfast in his love. His covenant is secure, and he's going to bring him through. And over time, he begins to develop this belief, this trust that is broad and deep in Abraham's life. It makes me think about 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul learned that the, the 
thorn in his flesh was there for what reason? So God could perfect, perfect him, his, show his perfection, his strength in Paul. And the same thing's happening, I think, with Abraham. Now think about the vulnerabilities in your own life. Things you have trouble trusting God for. But while you have trouble trusting God for them, you find it easy to trust yourself. You know what I'm talking about? You know what it is. It just came to your mind right now. Where in your life you have trouble trusting God to provide, but you have all the confidence in the world that you can make it happen. Abraham had a problem with fear and doubt in his life. Faith is what he's known for. But it's interesting that this is his greatest weakness, apparently. And I take you back to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, the thorn in the flesh. My strength is perfected in what? Your weakness. God says it's through and in your weakness where I will deliver you, I will strengthen you, and I will make my name great, not you but me. How can we navigate these kinds of challenges in a healthy, helpful way? Well, let me give you just three or four briefly. We're not going to have time to unpack these, but I think you can do this on your own. First of all, pay attention and recognize where these patterns occur in your life. You know, you wake up and you go, hmm, I've been here before last week or yesterday why does this keep happening the same thing keep occurring in my life secondly remember preach to yourself how God helped you before how God has delivered you before remind yourself that he is steadfast we're fickle and always prone to fall into these traps God is steadfast he's a covenant God he's an all-powerful God Thirdly, you can make the right choices. These are decisions that we make in our lives. By God's Spirit dwelling in us, He will empower, enable us to make better decisions, good decisions, the right decisions to stay out of those ruts. And once you're there, you need to respond with an intentional course correction. This is our fourth step here But it's our third point or portrait that we see with Abimelech and Abraham. It points to our response. How do we respond? Once we know where we are, that we're here again, we've gone off course from God. How do we make a course correction? A God-honoring course correction. In this instance, both men display a proper course correction. Both men cooperated in it. Now, you can make the right decision for yourself to correct course. You can't control what others do. You can work toward it. You can encourage them toward it, but you can't control it. Notice first Abimelech's response to God's grace. First of all, he returned to Abraham's wife. He returned Abraham's wife. He could have killed them both, but he didn't. He could have adopted a position of bitterness and rage toward them, just been furious with them, tried to make their lives miserable, but he didn't. He could have tried to negotiate a more favorable result for himself. 
Well, Abraham, if I'm going to let you off the hook here, there are lots of things you need to be doing on my behalf. But he didn't. What did he do? He simply obeyed God's instruction and leaned into God's grace. Verse 3, she's a man's wife. Verse 7, return the man's wife. Verse 7, if you do not return her, you will die. He welcomed prayer. You do this, this man's a prophet, he's going to pray for you. And he does more than just return Sarah. Notice what he does. He gives livestock, sheep, oxen, servants. He gives Abraham freedom to live in his land. Settle anywhere in my land that you want to. We're friends. He gives a thousand pieces of silver. It's unimaginable wealth. One commentator said that it would take a working man 150 years to accumulate a thousand pieces of silver. So Abimelech, the one Abraham assumed had no fear of God, does what? He's obedient to God's instruction. He is gracious beyond the instruction. What a great picture of stewardship. Not minimalistic, but generous. He's gracious. What a turnaround authored by God. Neither of these men can take credit for it. It was God that was intervening. He said, I'm the one that kept you from sinning. I'm the one that's working here, bringing you two knuckleheads together and helping you see light and truth. Then we see Abraham's response to God's grace. Abraham proved to be gracious and generous toward Abimelech. He recognized how God had worked in this matter despite his own doubts. He prayed for Abimelech. Now, this is really good. This might be my favorite part in the whole story. What did he pray for? Well, he prayed for the sexual dysfunction to be healed. He prayed for uh, his wife to have her womb opened for her to become fertile again. He prayed for the female servants' barren wombs to be made fertile again. For God to bless this man and his nation. How many times had Abraham, you think, prayed for God to open Sarah's womb? How many times had God, Abraham prayed and fasted for children? Just one child. God's made this promise. When are you going to give us the answer to this promise? For 25 years. They've been praying. And all those prayers have remained unanswered to this point. He prays one prayer for Abimelech and his household, and it turns into Northside's maternity ward. I think Abraham and Sarah might have been tempted to be resentful. But they weren't. In fact, I think we see the opposite. I think they were encouraged by the answer to prayer for Abimelech. <laughs> if God will do this for Abimelech, then he is certainly able to give us a child. And he can do it even in our old age. 
They were encouraged, I think, to keep praying and keep trusting God to keep his promise. So what? So what? Neat story, right? What do we do with it? What does it matter? What do we learn from it? Well, I think we learn that we need to examine our life for these well-worn ruts. They exist in all of our lives. Where are they? Now, you may not be acknowledging them. You may be unable to own them at this point, but you know they're there. You keep drifting into them, right? Sometime this week, you're going to find yourself with your foot in one of those ruts. Maybe you're there right now. Ask God to show you how to eliminate them or avoid them. Don't step in the mud holes. God, I want to keep my feet dry. I want to walk on firm ground where you direct me. Help me do that. Do you need God-honoring course correction? First of all, you have to recognize that this moment, this moment, this word speaking from God today to you is his grace for your life. It's not intended to be punitive. If you walk out of here feeling guilty, that's again on you, right? It's because you haven't heard the whole thing. God says, I have to point out you're standing in the mud hole. Now let me help you get out of it. Own it. Ask him to help you own your sin. Ask him to help you hate that sin, to repent of that sin, and to correct course. And by faith, obey his instruction. Lean into his spirit's work in you and for you. Finally, we need to learn to rest in God's glorious sovereignty. Rest in God's glorious sovereignty. He's in complete control no matter what your eyes indicate to you. You can trust in Christ's finished and perfectly sufficient work at Calvary. His blood is sufficient to cover every sin, no matter how great or small. Only His blood can reconcile you to a holy God. Only His blood. You can't make it happen. But you can certainly embrace what He has done for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your abundant grace, for your mercy, for the ways that you work and carry out your plans and purposes in our lives each and every day. Lord, give us eyes to be able to recognize when your grace is working. Lord, to hinder our own sin or Lord, to deliver us from sin's power. And those we come into contact with, Lord, that we would, we would learn from the example of Abraham and not allow ourselves, Lord, to undermine the testimony of your greatness and your glory, but that we would allow your glory to resonate in us and through us, that they might be drawn to you. Lord, I pray for the one here this morning that doesn't know you as Savior, that today might be the day of salvation, that your spirit even now would invade the heart and the mind, that you would remove the scales, the blindness towards sin, and that they would recognize their need for you and their provision in Christ 
And that today would be the day of new birth, of regeneration, of newness. And Lord, that you would help us as a church be people, Lord, who learn to walk in your grace moment by moment, day by day, week by week, all for your glory and all for your honor. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.